Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. All it took was for Larry Kudlow to remind us, of course, that the White House NEC director thinks the following. Remember, none of these tariffs have been put in place yet. These are all proposals. We're putting it out for comment. There are at least two months before any actions are taken. China, by the way, did not enact the tariffs. It's not a trade war. It's a negotiating position. Bob Sinch joining us in the studio, Amherst Pierpont Securities Global Strategist. Bob, why did we need Larry Kudlow to tell us that? Wasn't it obvious this time yesterday morning? I would have thought so, but you know, it. Uh, I, I think the international community probably reacts to these things more than we do here in the U.S. And, and look, this whole scenario of take an extreme position and then and then work it back is not unique. I mean, we're at a point right now where NAFTA six months ago, uh, there were many people who thought NAFTA was going to be the risk of 2018. And now we have the president pushing for an agreement, uh, you know, compromising on auto content and parts content uh, and pushing toward an agreement by a, you know, an America's conference in mid-April. So so suddenly we've gone from, you know, we're going to tear it up, uh, this this migration that's coming toward the U.S., suddenly towards a compromised position, which looks like maybe it'll come to fruition. So what should the playbook be for an investor? Because clearly investors are having a pretty tough time, in the equity market at least, because the other asset classes yesterday morning seem to have got the picture that this was a proposal, a negotiation, and not the end of the world. What do equity investors need to get right next time around? Fundamentals, fundamentals, fundamentals. I think that that investors really need to look at what's happening in terms of, of individual companies, um, you know, I think if you look at a broader picture, what we're seeing is a U.S. economy that's performing quite well um, in the early part of 2018. I was looking yesterday, you know, that we look at the manufacturing and the, the services uh, indexes from the ISM. They actually have a blended index, which is an all-economy PMI, weighted yeah. uh, PMI. The three-month average um, just hit a a 20-year high. It's the highest since it was introduced. The series was introduced in 1997. So the economy is doing very well, and I think part of that is a reaction to the weaker dollar uh, over the last year. We we normally say there's about a 12- to 18-month lag between movements in the dollar and its economic impact. And guess what? 12 months out from the peak in the dollar, we're seeing U.S. manufacturing start to outperform. We're seeing Eurozone manufacturing underperforming during the first quarter. Uh, I think the, the, the part of this, uh, this adjustment process to the dollar is now taking hold. And I think it actually bodes pretty well for the U.S. economy as we go forward. So it raises the question why we're failing to recognize the, the decent fundamentals that you observe. And, and something that Mark Dow, a fund manager on the West Coast, said last year has really stuck with me. And, and I think it continues to be something we really need to think about. This market... A lot of people are struggling to divorce their political biases from their real analysis, whether it's economic analysis or or market analysis. Why are we still struggling to do that? Quite clearly yesterday, people's views about what what is happening with trade or what isn't happening with trade is shaped by almost exclusively their distaste of the president of the United States. And that is actually really sort of warping their view of what is actually happening in terms of the negotiations over trade and the fundamentals of the U.S. economy. You know, I can't disagree. The, the way I've described it is we need to listen to the message and not the messenger. 
right? And so, um, you know, as we know, the, the, the president is not experienced in politics. Um, I think he probably doesn't want to become experienced in politics. He, he wants to take his own road. Um, he put, stakes out what he thinks are rational and somewhat extreme positions and then gets brought back within the construct of how the government operates, how the post office operates, how trade negotiations operate. But in, in general, he is pushing in a direction um, that I think, you know, makes some sense for the economy. And I, you know, having having worked with Larry Kudlow for 40 years, um, I, I still believe Larry is very much a free trader. Um, and I think he believes that the way this hopefully works out is that we expand U.S. markets into China, that that trade and uh, tariff and non-tariff barriers come down. And then, in fact, we expand the pie, not contract right. the pie. You are cross-asset. I want to take you away from your hyper-detailed notes at Amherst Pierpont, your elegant charts, and I just want you to speak to the listener who's whipsawed by this every day. The only solution is to expand your x-axis and that the person that was investing for seven weeks has to start thinking seven months, and the person that was investing for 18 months has to really start with a three- or four-year view. That's the only solution, isn't it? I think it is. And I think that, you know, as I've described, this has been a bit of a, uh, in the last couple of months, a bit of a Shakespearean market full of sound and fury signifying nothing. You know, you look at the year to date, you know, you can put up WEI. What's the year to date performance of the S&P? I think it's down 1% year to date. So you kind of look at the first <laughs> quarter and you say, what are, what are we getting so excited about? Uh, but in fact, we've had daily movements that dwarf the year-to-date movements, which is exactly the opposite of what we had last year. So we're going through an adjustment process. I, I think the things that we would focus on are uh, earnings momentum is still good in the U.S. Uh, we'll see how much of a response we get in terms of capital formation as a result of the tax adjustments and deal with the fact that interest rates are probably going higher, both at the short and the long end of the yield curve. And Bob, I think it's really important to point out that this isn't abnormal. What this is, is, is getting back to normal. Last year was abnormal. This is kind of normal. And the idea that the trade that worked, which was just short vol and long momentum, has broken down over the last couple of months. That's what we're seeing. And I guess, I, I assume, Bob, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that's why we're seeing it isolated to one region, the United States, and one asset class, U.S. equities. Would that be right? Yes, I think so. And I think that, that um, you know, part of this is, uh, to a, a global liquidity environment, which has been extremely accommodative. Remember, the beginning of the year, the ECB cut their rate of asset purchases in half from 60 billion euros to 30 billion euros a month. The BOJ uh, has shifted their target. It looks like they're buying fewer assets as they go forward. Um, the Fed is beginning to normalize interest rates, though um, I would argue that they still have a long way to go at the front end of the yield curve. The real Fed funds rate is just barely creeping into positive territory. So, um, yes, you have uncertainty about the global growth environment um, coming through, and I think, again, particularly in Europe, and you have a, a, a less aggressive liquidity environment. Um, and the two of those create uh, a new level of volatility, which which many people talked about uh, being a characteristic of 2018. So, Bob, going forward from here, I assume there's going to be more days like yesterday, and they're going to present a lot of opportunities for our listeners. And, and can you give us a sense and idea of how you should best take advantage of those opportunities on days like yesterday, if we are to see more as the year progresses? 
you know, I, I, it, it's hard to to uh, uh, you know. I think about what I'm doing myself, yeah. right, as an investor, and I think this is a year where equity returns probably are going to be somewhere in the five to eight percent range. Um, you know, if you're up five percent year to date, it's probably time to take some uh, some risk off the table. Conversely, if you get to be down five percent year to date that probably gives you a pretty good opportunity to increase some risk exposure. So I think it's it's leaning against this extreme volatility. You know, there are times where you can take advantage of, of, of volatility, but I think you have to be very disciplined about it and, and, and react to the volatility in a disciplined way as opposed to being frightened by it. Bob Sinch, thank you so much with Amherst Pierpont. Greatly appreciate that uh, this morning. Richard Greenfield with us now. We could talk for two hours. There's so much going on in the world of media. But let us start with, uh, I guess, John Shell Sandberg to speak to Bloomberg today in the 3 o'clock hour. 3 p.m. Eastern yeah. time. Looking forward to that conversation. The good news, the good news for investors at least, is that Facebook is saying the recent data crisis over the last couple of weeks hasn't hurt the business. The bad news is that um, data on most of its 2 billion users could have been accessed improperly. I want to bring in Rich Greenfield, BTIG Media and Technology Analyst. It's the good and the bad. Um, what do you take more notice of, Rich? I mean, look, at the end of the day, there's no doubt that Facebook didn't have the proper controls in place and certainly didn't give, didn't give consumers probably all the information that they clearly needed to have or even the controls they needed to have to manage their privacy. That being said, I don't see users abandoning Facebook or Instagram or WhatsApp. Uh, and I think that's the key point, right, is users aren't abandoning, advertisers aren't abandoning. Yeah. Facebook's got to fix things. I mean, look, Google had its own issues. Remember, you know, ISIS videos being next to, you know, you know kind of professional content in the U.S. Like, a lot of the Internet, I mean, the Internet's a pretty scary place. There's a lot that these companies have to, quote, unquote, grow up and, you know, better deal with their platforms and how they interact with consumers. But I think the key for your listeners is these are the two dominant platforms. If you're an advertiser, first of all, if you're a consumer, what's your alternative in terms of a service? It's not like there's an alternative to Instagram that's sitting out there that you're switching to. Yeah. And from an advertiser standpoint, you know, I think Facebook did $12 billion of advertising last quarter. It's not like you can take $12 billion of advertising and just move it someplace else. The world is moving to mobile. These are the two dominant platforms. They are certainly committing to getting better and improving and fixing their mistakes. But I just don't – I think at the end of the day, the, the pressure on the stock is overdone because at the end of the day, these are the platforms people want to use. These are the platforms advertisers want to advertise on, and that's going to make for a good stock. So in a material way, Rich, so far the consumer hasn't voted with their feet by moving away from the platform. To your point, there is an optimistic view about the advertising base not having anywhere to go. But Congress and the government are still going to go after Mark Zuckerberg and grill him hard next week. What is the area of weakness that you see in the CEO of Facebook that leaves him quite vulnerable as he goes in front of Congress next week? Uh, you know, look, I, I think if you listen to, you know, I listened to Mark give an interview on Vox the other day, and I think he was pretty pragmatic about being honest and open about the mistakes made and 
how difficult it is to fix some of the challenges, you know, talk about fake news and the impact on elections. I mean, these are not easy things to, to handle for any company. Um, look, I'm sure they're going to grill him. There's no doubt about yeah. it. Uh, I, I think that is a given. Uh, I think the, the reality is the, the threat and the pressure you're seeing on the stock yeah. has been fear of regulation. And the question is, I mean, look, we can't get anything done in this country. I think, you know, the, the real view that there's going to be some heavy-handed Internet regulation, uh, I find very hard to believe. Yeah. But, but even so, even if you believe that there's going to be even greater walls that go up around data and privacy, right. that's probably far more negative for all of Netflix – sorry, all of Facebook and Google's competitors than it is for Facebook and Google. The two companies right. that are the strongest – are actually probably going to get stronger if you put up high walls around data. Rich, you were courageous on Vonage years ago. It was a busted IPO. You led with responsible coverage of the, the disaster known to Vonage. Your note on Spotify was brilliant. How hard was it to value Spotify, and what should the street learn from this unique transaction? You know, look, I, I think we're still trying to figure out, you know, there's been a lot of trading volatility out of the out of the box around Spotify. Um, you know, no one's ever done a direct listing before. But I think what is fascinating about Spotify is that there really aren't a lot of global scaled platforms, mobile platforms, I think, is the critical piece here. Mm-hmm. You know, if you if you were to draw a circle around things that are on people's home screen, meaning on mobile, used on mobile, home screen worthy, that you love using, that have a credit card billing relationship on a monthly basis that you like paying for. That list of companies would be an incredibly small list, but Spotify is one of them. They hit all of or check all of those boxes. And I think the question that investors are struggling with is, can, is, is music in and of itself enough? Like, can they really get scale in music? Right. You know, Netflix has proven that exclusive content, that they can differentiate themselves from HBO, from network television. If you want to watch Stranger Things, the only place to do it is okay. on Netflix. Okay. Rich Greenfield, we got to leave it there. Sorry. Too, too uh, short today. Uh, Rich Greenfield uh, with BTIG. We didn't even get a chance to get to Disney and what's going on with Sky and, of course, Time Warner, AT&T. Let's talk about China. The White House's uh, National Economic Council Director, Larry Kudlow, uh, saying on Bloomberg, having to do with the uh, China's response to U.S. proposed tariffs and the sell-off in the stock market yesterday. Remember, none of the tariffs have been put in place yet, he said. He emphasized that it would take at least two months before any action is taken on what are still only proposals. Well, maybe this is the way Mr. Kudlow sees it. It may not be the way that the Chinese see it. Here to tell us more is Miranda Carr, Haitong Securities Head of China Thematic Research, joining us from London. Miranda, thank you very much for being with us. So is this really just part of a negotiating tactic that is really leading to a confrontation over intellectual property, or is it really a trade war? Um, I think this is the starting um, starting round in a much wider negotiation. Um, you've obviously had you know, the US coming out, but then the China came out very quickly afterwards um, and, and quite aggressively in order to set um, a sort of fairly hard tone for the future negotiations. When you say come um, out very aggressively, what, what do you mean by that? 
Well, it came out straight away with immediate tariffs, um, you know, saying that it wouldn't um, go into negotiating on America's terms, but it wanted to impose immediately its own tariffs in response. So, so this means that, if, you know, if you compare to how the U.S. Um, tackled Japan back in the 1980s, um, then China's arguably trying to play a stronger position here um, and not give so much ground. I, I, I look at this and I want to know how all the festivities of the last 48 hours plays in Shanghai and in China. You're in London, but what mm. is your take on how this plays? I mean, I understand the government angle and that if Pim and I were having a beverage of our choice at the jazz bar of the Fairmont Peace Hotel on the Bund, what would mm. the people next to us say? Well, they obviously they're concerned about um, what the the U.S. is is going to hit their markets um, pretty badly. Um, but the thing is, it's it's about it's not just about dominance in the trade um, or or just about the surplus. This is about sort of the, the the Chinese competing on a global basis with U.S. manufacturers, and this is why we we call it sort of more of an intellectual property war. It's it's about who's going to dominate the next. 5, 10, 20 years in terms of things like you know, telecommunications, 5G, AI, and the future sort of technology race. Um, and now China wants to be a, a leading part of that, it, you know, hence why the U.S. targets the Made in China 2025 20, sectors are not things like uh, widgets and some of the sort of lower-end textiles and the lower-end goods that China manufactures and are also a key part of the, um, the China's trade surplus. So China knows it's in a it's in a long term war um, in terms of global dominance. It's not just it's not just a, a little bit of arguments about you know soybeans and and, and textiles anymore. This is um, a much bigger picture. Miranda Carr, based on your conversations with people in China over the last several months, do you mm. sense a difference in the way they perceive President Donald Trump versus? former President Barack Obama. Is there a level of response and perspective that is different now than it was two, three years ago? Well, most definitely. I mean, the the the, the way that Trump is dealing with China is is very, very different, and it's, it's a much more sort of adversar- adversarial Do the Chinese um, respect hardball? Um, well, they do, but they also, in some ways, taking it slightly cynically, um, because if you think of where, instead of sort of hitting directly back at some of the um, um, the key uh, imports that would would um, affect the U.S., they're going after the places where they know that the the voters, um, the Trump voters, will be particularly badly hit. So, particularly in sort of the agricultural. Um, sector and sort of affecting the rural yeah. areas. So, 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 so it's a fairly cynical um, um, negotiating tactic because, to be honest, um, if they limit um, imports of soybeans, it's going to badly affect China more than it does the US. Yeah. They can't get soybeans from anywhere else. It raises food prices um, and, and it's something they, they, they lack. So this is a fairly sort of cynical negotiating tactic. It's not a, it's not a real um, uh, a real threat, right. but obviously they, they don't see. Um, you know, we're now into a stage where it's much more um, um, competitive, and in terms of because what's changed, it's not just the Trump administration's change, but obviously Xi's vision for China. 
has yeah. changed significantly as well. And yeah. saying that China is going to reclaim its, um, you know, you know, rightful state in the global affairs means that they're taking a much more aggressive stance as well. Okay. So it's, so it's changes on both sides. We have to leave it there. Miranda Carr, thank you so much with High Tonk Securities in London. The strength of Bloomberg surveillance is our effort to go out across this nation and actually find people that know what they're talking about, other than what Pim Fox and I put up with 24-7 and three zip codes in New York City, and maybe we can drag L.A. or San Francisco into it. Here's what you need to know about Ames, Iowa. The world ended on February 18th when Iowa clobbered Iowa State in wrestling. That's all that matters out in Iowa is Iowa crushed Iowa State in wrestling 35-6, except for soybeans. That's actually worse right now than wrestling. Joining us, truly one of the nation's experts on the dynamics of Iowa agriculture and soybeans, Chad Hart is at Iowa State University. Chad, wonderful to have you with us. What will a given farmer do 87 miles south of Ames, Iowa? What would a given farmer do 87 miles south of, uh, of me and Ames here? Well, you're talking about they're south of Des Moines as well. And so what they're probably doing right now is trying to figure out when is it going to get warm enough to plant. Well, within the weather and the dynamic of planting, I read the Des Moines Register, I believe it was yesterday. I can't remember exactly, which is the China tariff angle takes $7 a pig off that pig. Can you do that marginal math to know what the various threats will cost the nation or that farmer 87 miles south of Des Moines and Ames? Well, what we've been working on here is that we've already seen within the lean hog futures market that with the announcement of the Chinese tariffs there, we saw those markets back off by about $6 per hundredweight or per hundred pounds. They've recovered about a dollar and a half of that. So they're still down $4.50 per hundred pounds. We've also seen the soybean market react to the announced you know, potential tariffs there. They backed off about 20 cents from where they were pre-announcement there. So we're already watching these impacts hitting the various crops and livestock markets where the tariffs are being announced. And it's translating directly into the prices that producers are receiving for their products today. Chad Hart, I was looking at the Des Moines Register, and there's a quote from the president of the American Soybean Association, and uh, he says, Mr. Heisdorfer uh, says, farmers are feeling a real pinch. If we can't get these commodity prices up, we are going to start losing farmers, and there's no way of getting around it. Is that accurate? That is accurate. Actually, what we've seen over the past five years is we've seen a dramatic decline in net farm income for our nation's farmers. The pinch has been on for some time, if you will. This most recent news just adds to the pressure that some of our farmers facing. And I would describe you know, the farming community in this way. It's sort of like a double-humped camel, if you will. In the first hump, we've got our very successful farmers. They're doing still rather well, even with relatively low prices because they've been able to control their cost structure. But we do have a significant segment of farmers that have struggled over the last few years, and these low prices are beginning to drag down their net worth and basically reduce their cash flow to next to nothing. Do the farmers and the people that you speak with, do they believe that the Agriculture Secretary, Sonny Perdue, is doing enough? 
they believe he's trying. And when we're looking here, everything that's coming out of Secretary Purdue and, and the higher ups at USDA says that they're they're talking up at least the you know I would say both the positive and negative aspects for agricultural trade. Mm-hmm. But when we're looking here, for the most part, U.S. agriculture definitely is export dependent. When you look, roughly 20% of our production across the entire agricultural complex is exported out of the U.S. I mean, I look, Chad Hart, at all of this, and I go back to a wonderful The Atlantic article, which was on Iowa, and it was on the Dynamic 20 and 30 years ago, when President Xi, as a minor Chinese official, visited uh, Muscatine, I, I believe it is, slept in a, in a house in Muscatine to bond with Iowa. From where you sit in the agricultural capital of the Midwest, Ames, Iowa, what's that linkage of China to your state? Well, there's a, there's a very strong linkage, as you mentioned. President Xi was here 30-some years ago, came back to visit us just a, just a couple of years ago since then. What he found on both trips was, you know, he went to, if you will, the same farmhouse, found the same farm family, and found that also Iowa had the same governor, who is now, of course, the ambassador to China. And so when you look here, there is a very strong linkage okay. there, but that linkage does not prevent or, you know, preserve necessarily any relationship. This can, continues to evolve. Can Ambassador Branstead uh, advise the president? on a best practice for Midwest agriculture? Arguably, he already is. And so when we look at you know President Trump's moves here, I assume that he's listening to not only his agricultural advisors, but across the entire spectrum when we look at our general economy. And so that's got to be part of the conversation. We're speaking with uh, Chad Hart. He is Associate Professor of Economics, Crop Market Specialist uh, at the Iowa State uh, University. And uh, Chad, one other point about what's going on with U.S. farmers. If they're being hit by this level of uncertainty and declining income, what does that mean about unneeded equipment on the farm, restructuring debt? It's got to have a knock-on effect, doesn't it? It does have a knock-on effect, and we have been seeing that build over the past couple of years. As you mentioned, the idea is that, you know, used machinery, that that market took a hit. We did see land values back off a couple of years ago as the incomes declined. And so we have seen the agricultural economy shrinking, even though the general economy has been growing over the past couple of years. Biggest issue right now politically for Iowa is what? These tariffs? Uh these tariffs would be front and center as we look here just because they hit so hard and so fast in terms of the pricing for the commodity today for example with soybeans even though you know the announced tariff has not come into place yet it already is having market impacts for our producers not only in what they're selling today but if you will what they're planning to sell over the next year to two years Uh, professor before we let you go we have a we have a global audience a coast-to-coast audience we mentioned el paso texas earlier this morning but the fact is the large portion of our audience is in saran wrap stores buying perfect agriculture worldwide and taking advantage of it every day if you had one message from the trenches for americans about our agricultural product and our food product, what would it be? Well, it's in this case, when you think about agriculture, as you mentioned, we are used to being able to go to the grocery store, find whatever we want, you know, in proper packaging and be able to carry it home and do what with what we want. But the idea is it hasn't been that way for that long and we don't pay that much for our food 
when you think about that dollar you spend at the grocery store, yeah. roughly 15 cents of it goes back to the farmer to pay for the product that actually, okay. if you will, creates the well, food. Professor, we're out of time. Chad Hart, Iowa State, Ames, Iowa. Always with Douglas Cass of Seabreeze Partners, you rip up the script and you really go to the news flow. There are two items we need to talk about, and one is the sheer excitement for our global audience in the American sport of baseball, and that would be a Red Sox team that seems to be pretty good. But the absolute unique characteristics, Doug Cass, of your New York Yankees, I had goosebumps yesterday. You, you you and I did not live 1927, but what's going on with the Yankees this year is goosebump worthy for everybody that loves baseball. Yeah, they're a juggernaut. I mean, your producer see- just your producer asked me if I could get Sandy on the phone um, in the next interview, and I told him yes. He says, "Do you mind if you step off the phone?" <laughs> well, we we would be honored to have Mr. Koufax, as you brought us Jim Palmer last year, who was shockingly prescient on the Houston. Astros, as we we look at the things to talk about, Doug, I want to have a cogent and constructive uh, conversation about the humility in the business. And of course, with the end or funds leaving Pershing uh, Square Capital, our Scott Duvaux publishing that on the year end note, Blackstone, J.P. Morgan Chase and others exited uh, millions of dollars. Was was Mr. Ackman, Bill Ackman with Herbalife and all was he was he undiversified? Were the bets too big? Um, he ran a, an extraordinarily concentrated portfolio and book, um, something that Warren Buffett has um, consistently cautioned about. Um, that coupled with um, his public persona and unfortunately a large share of hubris. Uh, have contributed to um, his disappointing results. But I would also add, unrelatedly, that market conditions also contributed um, not only to Pershing Square's poor results. Well, Mr. Einhorn as well, long short. In general, the hedge fund community. And, you know, some brilliant people like David Einhorn, who I consider a friend, has done disappointingly uh, poorly as well. Um, You know, we... We have this, we've entered something I've discussed with you repeatedly, and I think you use it as a promo. Um, we're in this new volatility regime. We're in a market with, which virtually has no memory from day to day. So the construction of permanent or buy and hold long-term portfolios grow increasingly more difficult in the environment. I mean, let, let, let's just look at yesterday. Um which is a constant reminder that either I'm an idiot or that there's an endless supply of idiots out there, or maybe the two are mutually exclusive. Um, the, the S&P is now uh, rallied by 100 uh, S&P points, the Dow Jones by 800 points from the pre-market lows yesterday. And, you know, we all try to search for reasons. Managing money in that sort of volatile environment yeah. is really uh, dangerous and yeah. problematic. So, I like to say that we're all traders now. 
Uh, I like that idea. Let me bring well, in Pim th- Fox Doug, who loaded the boat early yesterday yeah, morning. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, but l- let me just challenge a little bit, uh, Doug Cass, because he used the word brilliant people. And, you know, when the stock market continues to move higher and there's no volatility, everybody looks like a hero. How come now that we have volatility and now that everybody has to prove their chops, you end up with a situation where no one can explain accurately why other investors have been dumping stocks because you never hear anybody telling you that they're selling their own stocks. And having said that, doesn't that call into question the very, quote, brilliance that you describe? It does. It's a great question, and it would probably take four hours of conversation. But I would say to you, Pim, that um, the market has changed dramatically in the last decade. You mean investors have changed? Uh, the dominant investor group. You know, when I graduated business school, Wharton, in the early 70s, it was bank trust departments that were the dominant uh, factors in the market. Then we had the proliferation of mutual funds, and then 10 or 15 years later, we had the proliferation of hedge funds. Now machines and algos dominate trading these days. And there, as you saw yesterday, they were triggered (laughs) off the fourth or fifth, I can't count, successful retest of 2550. So... I'm sorry, go ahead. You and I have talked about this before, and this is the heart of the matter for Global Wall Street. Hedge funds are structured on 2 and 20, 2% fee plus 20% of the take, and that worked in a high-yield, high-nominal, high-real-yield environment where you had some wiggle room, you had some squishiness. That's gone. How can you garner that fee structure and make the 20% gain given where we are in terms of rates and total return potential. The math's not the same as it was 10 years ago. It's really difficult in a low, as you said, structurally in a low interest rate environment and in a low, maybe even substandard return environment, yeah. two and 20 simply doesn't work. The VIG, as we would say in a baseball bet, exactly. is too high. I mean, Pimp Fox, this is something you understand. Doug Cass and I having an overpriced cup of coffee at the Four Seasons <laughs> over on 59th Street, the math worked. Yeah, well, ago. I see. I'm still buying my coffee on the on the corner with the guy at the cart, and and I'm trying to understand. You know, in, and I think you said something interesting, Doug, there about the dominant forces in the market. The traders now are machines. Does this then offer an opportunity to human beings to find companies that they believe have value? and to stick with their opinions and their perceptions in a way that machines cannot? Great question again. If you have, it's, it, to me, it's a function of time frames and the patience of your investor base. If your invest, investor base is impatient and wants returns quickly, you're screwed, stated simply. Right, but don't you you want a long term investor base? I mean, aren't those the right. ideal clients? Because traders, they're going to leave. You know, happened, when look the what's happening to Pershing Square, Pershing Square, in the article I forwarded to Tom, got it. He's losing a large portion of his investors through redemptions. So it's easier said than done getting a large investor base, and a lot of the hedge funds <clears> have moved from being active investors to passive investors, machine derived strategies and products. So you know, we see what happens when everyone gets on the same side of the boat in early February, and that's going to occur with greater frequency, and the market will be, will have greater unpredictability on top of the fact that we have more uncertainty today in the economy, in the markets, in the political and geopolitical 
backdrops. So what are you doing right now? We've got one minute left, Doug Cass. Tell us, please, what you're doing right now, given this historic volatility. Um, I, I believe that the real influence in the last half of this year will be the administration. And I think that Trump, with a health, healthy dose of the machines and the algos we described, is going to make market volatility and economic uncertainty great again. So I am fearful that his policy will result in mistakes. Uh, basically, we have an untethered president who is conflating politics with economic policy. Okay. And you can't have hastily crafted economic policy without deep analysis yeah. um, in, in a flat, networked, and interconnected world. It just doesn't work. Right. We've got to leave it there. Doug Kiss, thank you so much. Show up next time if you can with the giant of the game, Mr. Koufax of uh, Los Angeles. Doug Kiss is with Seabreeze Partners. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.